There's a slew of, look at this mama. She's so beautiful inside and out. And it's always, again, on the photos of women who are thin. This equating of you are slaying motherhood because you don't have any physical reminders that you've created human and birthed a human. Hello and welcome to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I'm the author of The Eating Instinct and the forthcoming Fat Kid Phobia, and I write the newsletter Burnt Toast. Today's conversation is with Sarah Peterson, who is a writer based in New Hampshire. Her essays about feminism, domesticity, and motherhood have appeared in the New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, Washington Post, InStyle, Glamour, and so many other places. And her first book, Mom Fluenced, which examines the performance of motherhood through the multi-layered phenomenon of mommy influencer culture and what this reveals about the texture of modern motherhood and what we might learn from it is coming next year from Beacon Press. So Sarah and I are having a conversation about the Venn diagram overlap between mom fluencing and diet culture, particularly in the space of birth announcements and postpartum bodies. I want to give a quick disclaimer that Sarah and I are both white, straight, cisgender women who had our children biologically. We both have varying degrees of thin privilege. This conversation is very focused on the experience of motherhood as this white, straight, cisgender phenomenon. That is the reality of momfluencing, right? It's not an inclusive world. Most of the momfluencers fit into those boxes. And so that's who we're talking about today. I'm really aware, and Sarah is too, that in having this conversation, we are focusing on skinny white ladies and not on other voices. And that is the whole problem in a nutshell. But I just wanted to say right up top that if a conversation about pregnancy and childbirth and body changes does not sound like the right conversation for you right now, feel free to skip this one. If, however, you want to dissect mom influencers and all the weird tropes and crazy shit that goes into their posts, you are in the right place. So here is Sarah, but first a quick break. Okay, it's January. The new year, new you resolution noise is very, very loud right now. I am deleting so many press releases out of my inbox. It's actually a little bit cathartic, to be honest. But what if we just don't do it? What if instead you resolve not to diet this year? What if you resolve to take up more space, not less? What if you resolve to dismantle diet culture and fat phobia instead of continually reinforcing these toxic concepts by starting a new diet and punishing yourself more. If you are into that, Burnt Toast is the place for you. And now is the time to join us because it is our new year no diet sale. So for the whole month of January, I'm taking 20% off subscriptions. It gets you down to $4 per month or $40 for the year. You get a ton of perks for that. You get subscriber-only bonus episodes of the podcast where I answer your questions about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. You also get full access to the Burnt Toast newsletter, all my reported essays, my full monthly Ask Virginia column, and you become a part of the Burnt Toast community. And this is where I think if you really are thinking about trying to stay diet-free this year, this could be a really helpful place to get support. You get commenting privileges. You also get our super awesome Friday discussion threads where people just really show up for each other as we're all navigating these complicated waters. So go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com slash new year, no diet to subscribe. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for being here. Hi, I'm so psyched. So why don't we start by defining some terms? 
Sarah, what is a momfluencer? I loved the way you put it in your Harper's Bazaar piece, which we'll, of course, link to. They enrage us, and yet we cannot look away. The most standard definition of a momfluencer is an influencer who is also a mother who has monetized her Instagram account, her TikTok account, whatever social media platform she's using. I'm sort of broadening it for my research and for the purposes of my book to look at how we all perform motherhood on social media, whether or not we have a monetized following. Interesting. That makes sense because it is true. You get micro-influenced by mothers in your space, even if they're not capital M momfluencers. Totally. And it impacts how you think about posting your own motherhood content on your own page. Yes. I see this even with moms I know who have like 300 followers and it's a private account. There's like suddenly a tone shift, yes. right? What is the language? What am I noticing when I hear that shift? It's this really self-conscious narratization of your own story. You start calling yourself a mama versus a mother or a mom. There's this romanticization of the basic facts of motherhood. I'm embarrassed to admit both my children call me mama because that's what we were doing in 2013 when my oldest child was born. And now I'm kind of over it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to shift them to mom. (laughs) It feels weird to make them change. But I totally know what you're talking about. There's this need of telling the story and constantly performing your motherhood in a very specific way the professional momfluencers have become a very legitimate industry. We are seeing much more analysis and discourse around them, which I really cannot get enough of. It's super fascinating. So I am so excited for your book. What made you want to dive so deep into this topic? I think probably Taza Naomi Davis was one of my first obsessions. I've talked about this before, but She made motherhood look so joyful. (laughs) And that was confounding for me because I'm someone, you have to do the stupid disclaimer, like, obviously, I love my kids. I'm super grateful for my kids and all that. But nine times out of ten, I don't love the work of motherhood. It's tedious. It's monotonous. It's boring a lot of the time, like playing a store or whatever. So seeing someone constantly post this really beautiful, joyful picture of motherhood got in my psyche and made me question what I was doing. Why wasn't I so readily able to access that same joy? And then I went down the rabbit hole from there. (laughs) I can relate to that so much. I also often do not love the work of being a mom or the extent to which my personal identity is suddenly bound up in that. For both of us as writers, you experience that shift of like, you were a journalist before and now you're a mom writer and what happened? Mm -hmm. There's also the aesthetics of momfluencing. I'm kind of cracking up because I'm recording in my four-year-old's bedroom right now. Long story, my office is under construction. I'm sitting next to a giant sloth (laughs) named Stella, who's an important part of our family. And she's pretty hideous. (laughs) (laughs) And my four-year-old loves her with her whole heart. She also loves this giant goat named Jim that's on my other side right here. I really should have brought Kevin. I have a dolphin in my house. Oh, it's a narwhal. It's a narwhal named Kevin. 
Well, narwhals are kind of trendy. I guess they still, are. sloths are a little trendy too. I find motherhood is a real drag on my aesthetic vibe. This room is filled with stuffed animals that I would never have chosen mm-hmm. to surround myself with because my children love them and it brings them great joy. And the momfluencer version on Instagram is very much like your children perfectly fit into this beautiful curated life and their children do not have giant sloths and goats <laughs> and narwhals or like they have like the cute Etsy versions. The wooden Montessori versions. Right. And that feels like a really interesting tension. Is that something you're going to be looking into for the book? Yes. I just finished drafting a chapter on aesthetics. The detritus of children in a home is ugly nine out of 10 times. Yeah. I just spoke to Bethany Garcia about this. She is momfluencer with a capital M as the Garcia Diaries. And she was talking about how she'll do the staged photo shoots with her kids in cute little shaker fisherman cardigans. But she's really transparent about the fact that she bribes her kids to wear those. And she tells her followers these things. Because as soon as the photo shoot is done, they want to wear their Spider-Man onesies or whatever. They're back in their umbros. That is a refreshing shift. That seems to be that constant tension momfluencers are walking of how much to lean into the aesthetic and how much to be authentic about what's going on behind the scenes because their followers crave both the aspiration and get mad if you're too aspirational and we want to see the real life mess. There's definitely both those things happening. Yeah, totally. And we should mention for folks who are as fascinated by momfluencers as we are, if you want more on these topics, we both recommend Catherine Jeezer Morton's newsletter called Mothers Under the Influence. And Joe Piazza's Under the Influence podcast is also a fascinating lesson. Joe's podcast is really, really good at looking at the industry of momfluencing and how it is a multi-million dollar industry. And she really does an excellent job of doing a deep dive of the business and the economy of momfluencing. Catherine's newsletter, she has an academic background, so it's a wonderful deep dive into how socioeconomics impact how we see momfluencers, mm-hmm. how race and class, how the prosperity gospel impacts how we see motherhood, like owning it or constantly killing it or you go, mom. The doing life of it all. Meg Conley wrote about attempting the influencer thing mm-hmm. because of that prosperity gospel pressure. Yep. God, it's so fascinating. Okay, so that's your larger landscape about momfluencers. Today, Sarah and I are going to talk about momfluencers' bodies and how the momfluencing sphere intersects with diet culture. It's really important to articulate that these women are both products of and creators of diet culture. They are both living under these really rigid standards about what their bodies should look like and reinforcing those standards and even producing those standards through all this content creation. There's a very fascinating tension there. Mm-hmm. There's also a very specific vernacular and aesthetic to how momfluencers do diet culture. What are some of the common tropes you see, the visual cues or accessories where you're like, okay, we are, we are in diet culture land now? Pregnancy and postpartum are the two biggest phases where you're going to see it. Documenting of pregnancies and the barrage of comments on like, how do you look so good pregnant with your fifth kid? I'm pregnant with my first. Then there's self-disparaging comments about the commenter or the poster. Then there's the postpartum photos. It's how did you lose the weight so quickly? How did you get your body back so quickly? How did you bounce back? You have made humans and yet you look like you've never made humans, which means you've achieved 
what diet culture tells us is women's primary goal in life, to be a mother and also to look like that never happened to you. It's very interesting because there's often a lot of body positive talk woven in with bouncing back. Then it can get really murky because there's a lot of, I'm doing this for me, like this is hashtag self-care that I'm losing the weight and not acknowledging that you're reinforcing fat phobia in the process of that. There's also the reality of there are very few major name fat mom influencers. There's often this rhetoric of like, oh, you're so brave because you're showing us stretch marks. There's this bravery narrative around it. But the only people who get to be brave are thin white women. Another one of the tropes is the conflating of moral goodness with how one's body is presenting. Mm, There's a slew of, look at this mama. She's so beautiful inside and out. And it's always, again, on the photos of women who are thin. This equating of you are slaying motherhood because you don't have any physical reminders that you've created a human and birthed a human. (laughs) Which adds to the erasure of the labor of motherhood. It erases the need for things like postpartum leave and universal preschool. Things that actually help mothers in systemic, meaningful ways versus the hashtag no excuses. That's a big one. Just because I have kids doesn't mean I shouldn't completely devote myself to diet culture. You're right. If you manage to look like you never had a kid at six weeks postpartum, then why do you need maternity leave? Because you got your body back. You're done. That's infuriating. So you have some case studies for us. We are going to analyze and I will link to everybody in the transcript. All right. So the first one we're going to look at is Hannah Nealeman. She's Ballerina Farm. She's pretty huge. She's a rancher in Utah. She's Mormon. She's married to one of the heirs to JetBlue. But that's not a big part of her platform because that would go against the like homesteading rancher woman vibe. So she is pregnant with her seventh child. The comments are just all really... This is, again, another trope, praising her superwoman powers. There's comments saying, like, how does she look like this, pregnant with her seventh kid? Then there's another comment that says, I think she's just got amazing abs and was able to hide it this long. So there's this really pointed dissection of mothers' bodies in all of these case studies where commenters are communicating with each other about, oh, did you notice? I thought I saw a little pooch last week. This really overt objectification of mothers' bodies. The commenters are like being detectives and overly scrutinizing. There's a sense of ownership over this woman's body. It's our job to suss out whether she's reproducing. We have to be that zeroed in on her body. That's a very uncomfortable dynamic. Yeah. And then particularly with her, she posts a lot of cleaning videos Where she'll clean up the mess of six children and make it look like a lark with lots of thumbs up. A huge part of her story is that she does it all with a smile. There's a comment under this pregnancy announcement post that says, this is what true feminism looks like, doing it all so cool. Okay, wait, I want (laughs) to give listeners more context and describe the birth announcement that I am looking at. She is in a very rustic barn type space. She is wearing what looks like a long, lacy, white wedding dress. So we're really leaning into the purity thing. Uh-huh. 
It has long sleeves. It's all lace. It does have a very high slit up the leg, like yep. crotch high slit. But it's otherwise like she's a column of lace. And she's yeah. just strolling back and forth across this wooden floor in this dress and heels and then turning slyly to the side so you can see her very tiny baby bump that mm-hmm. if she was not putting her hands directly on, I would never have even registered as a bump. She's a very thin person. Okay, so this is feminism. So Sarah, help me. How is this feminism? Feminism is being a mother, assuming motherhood as a gender essentialist, natural role that a mother should do easily and well, and with a smile on her face. She's adhering to all the patriarchal standards that there are. She's conventionally attractive. She's retaining her heterosexual desirability, in spite of and despite motherhood. She's in the home and she's happy about it all. She's not complaining. She doesn't need anything more than she already has. She's loving it. She's right. just walking back and forth in this white gown with a huge smile. Mm-hmm. Oh, and she's going to the Miss America pageant. I think she said something like, followers have been asking if I'm taking any of the kids to the Mrs. America pageant and I just tell them just one and the one is the fetus <laughs> baby number seven and this has over a hundred and two thousand likes mm-hmm. so just so if people haven't heard of her I don't think we're just like plucking her from obscurity right <laughs> <laughs> I think about young women especially coming from that rural America conservative background aspiring to this and it feels like such an unfair bar there's so many things about this that are resting on all the different kinds of privilege she has. She's only doing it all because she's married to a gazillionaire and, you know, she's also probably not doing it all. I mean, she's certainly not doing it all. Well, and that's another thing. She also homeschools her kids. So let's just add that there. But there's never any acknowledgement of outside childcare help, house cleaning help, How would she go to Mrs. America with only the fetus if she doesn't have somebody to help with kids one through six? Well, this is another part of her doing it all narrative, the idealization of her marriage, because Daniel, her husband, was with the kids. She made a big point of posting stories like, Daniel's staying at home with the kids and he's the best. That's interesting. So it's almost like a cosplay of equality and co-parenting, but with that need to overly praise your husband for doing his part. Who do we have next? Because I'm ready for more. (laughs) Amber Fillerup Clark. She's been around forever. She used to be known as Barefoot Blonde. I don't know if I would call her ex-Mormon, but she's actually written some really insightful, interesting posts about disagreeing with the church on a lot of things, which Mm. is refreshing. But she, again, is a thin woman. And she announced her fourth pregnancy I will describe it as I am absorbing it. She is wearing a cowboy hat and a taupe, string bikini top, and then the white linen, again, with the high slit skirt. And she's standing on a beach. She is arching her torso quite significantly Mm -hmm. in order to display the baby bump. This is a very thin person. She's also wearing what appears to be just sleeves. 
just sleeves, but no shirt. Yeah, I don't know if it's a sun protection thing or... It's like just, there's these mesh arm sleeves, but they're not attached to anything. (laughs) And Uh, how is it sun protection when her entire torso is exposed? I really want to see the back to see if these sleeves connect, but I realize I'm getting off on a sidebar (laughs) with the sleeves. So what were those things in like the late 90s that we wore to prom? What the hell were those things? Oh, was it a shrug? Yes, 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 yes. That's what I'm... Okay, so she's wearing like a mesh gray (laughs) shrug over her bikini. Well, not really over her bikini top because it does not cover her bikini top in any way. But it's, it's very like it's just cut to go to her shoulders. It's okay. People can check it out. I guess we could say she feels empowered. I'm putting huge air quotes up. She leans into her sexuality in a way that not all momfluencers do. Oh, there's a comment that says, no wonder he keeps putting babies in you. In all caps. So she gets a lot of the hypersexualized comments that make me feel feelings. (laughs) Well, again, it's the sense of ownership over her body that her followers have. Mm-hmm. It's such a tension, right? Because, yes, she's putting a semi-naked photo of herself out there for the world to discuss. And I still feel violated on her behalf. Does she not deserve some privacy? I'm all for her being proud of her sexuality, but that's not the same thing as inviting everybody else into that conversation. Totally. This is where it gets really interesting in analysis of momfluencer culture is the whole, but they're putting themselves out there Mm -hmm. so they deserve whatever intrusive behavior or commentary they get, which is obviously an absurd logic. There's sites like Get Off My Internet, GoMe, where it's a bunch of strangers just hating on these people. I'm always curious what percentage when you see these really high follower counts are hate followers. There's something happening there where that makes you feel better about yourself to dissect her. When I have written about this kind of stuff, have then been told, oh, you're tearing down other women. How do we have a dialogue and a conversation about what these images represent and what their influence on other women without looking like we're tearing down other women? Cultural criticism is not tearing people down. It's criticism. That's different. Well, and I feel like one of the things to consider is like, it doesn't matter how we feel about individual motives. It doesn't matter why she posted this photo. It doesn't matter that she chose to wear a bikini. None of that matters. That's not anyone's job to critique. But what we can critique is... How does consumption of this type of stuff impact how women and mothers see themselves? How does it perpetuate unrealistic beauty standards? There's also just a lot of policing happening. There's a comment here that says, she already looks hungry, and then to think that she's meant to be nurturing a baby as well in there with the sad face emoji. Yeah, so she's getting the health trolling that like right. fat people get as well. This woman has all the thin privilege in the world. Whenever people health troll thin people, it always comes back to fat phobia because they're saying, oh, she's too thin to be healthy. But they're really responding to her thinness makes me feel bad because thinness is so valued and I don't have that thinness. It's always in opposition to fatness. I think a lot about the responsibility of influencers putting these images out for young girls. They do have a responsibility to not perpetuate these dangerous beauty ideals. And yet also, we do not know this woman's health. We cannot make assumptions based on her body that she has an eating disorder or she's not eating enough to nourish her pregnancy. Healthy pregnancies look different on every person. There's no evidence here 
that she's doing anything dangerous for her pregnancy. I'm both really troubled by the standard this reinforces, and I feel like it's important to just emphasize that we don't actually know what we're seeing. And we also don't know how much of this is even real, right? Because these photos are heavily edited and styled. 100%. All right, who's next? I just wanted to briefly touch on Rachel Hollis. I included her infamous tiger stripes bikini Mm -hmm. shot. Do you want to describe the image, Virginia? Yes. She is standing also on a beautiful beach, (laughs) and she is wearing a monogrammed bikini top. She loves her monograms. And her hair is very messy. She's giving us a lot of beachy waves and big sunglasses. This does look like something that maybe her husband just snapped on his iPhone while they were on the beach. It has a much more loose, casual, lower quality vibe to the photo. And what you see is her stomach, which is very flat because she is a very thin person, but has sort of some like bumpy skin, I guess I would say. (laughs) Like there's, I wouldn't even say it's loose skin exactly. It's like her skin is just not perfectly taut. There's a little bit of texture to her stomach. That is what I would say about her stomach there. It is lightly textured. This one exemplifies something that is characteristic of Rachel Hollis's whole thing, which is everything I have is a result of my individual hard work and not because of my various layers of privilege. Mm -hmm. And she writes, those marks prove that I was blessed enough to carry my babies and that flabby tummy means I worked hard to lose what weight I could. So again, it's this imperative, I have to work out. I have to change the way my body looks after birthing humans because that's indicative of me being somehow morally superior to people who choose not to exercise or choose not to prioritize weight loss after pregnancy. She goes on to uphold her sexual desirability as something that she is actively prioritizing when she says, I wear a bikini because the only man whose opinion matters knows what I went through to look this way. That same man says he's never seen anything sexier than my body, marks and all. You're upholding every beauty ideal with a minor deviation from that norm. Your bravery is this minor deviation. I feel frustrated that none of these women are questioning the premise. There is never a sense of maybe I don't have to lose the baby weight. Maybe I made three, four, seven humans with my body and therefore my body is allowed to look like it changed. Nobody is questioning that premise at all. And yet, it's hard to say I feel sorry for Rachel Hollis because of the complicated person that she is. But I do feel frustrated that a photo like this elicits everyone to take out their magnifying glasses and stare at that skin on her stomach instead of just saying, here is a thin, beautiful woman with lots of privilege standing on a beach. Mm-hmm. We are also trained to dissect them in this way that we are reinforcing the narrative and the standards just as much as they are. Katie Crenshaw, she's a great follow, writes a lot about body image stuff as it pertains to motherhood. She talks about the bullshit of calling images like these brave. She says, let's stop qualifying perceived flaws. Imperfections aren't more beautiful or acceptable because someone produced a child. There's no moral hierarchy. That's so important to underscore (sighs) in this whole conversation. This assumption that if our bodies change because we had children, we're somehow given more grace than people who haven't birthed children when their bodies change. Thank you for articulating that. That is so important. Yes. 
lots of people's stomachs look like Rachel Hollis's stomach or significantly fatter, are actually just fat stomachs. <laughs> and they haven't had kids, and they don't owe us an explanation or a justification for that either. You don't have to earn the right to have a flawed body. It goes back to the tiger stripes, like Rachel Hollis saying that somehow her body looks the way it does because she's gone through some sort of whatever, the warrior goddess mentality of Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. motherhood. Which is also another way of fetishizing motherhood instead of seeing motherhood. If you're equating the experience of giving birth to running a triathlon, now you're stronger than ever and it's made you a better person, then we don't have to do anything for moms. Because they're walking through this fire so willingly and bravely. If they can withstand it, then they don't need kid leave or childcare. So it's both harming moms and harming all the people who are not moms by saying this is your justification for this body. Which goes back to Ballerina Farms and her, she does it all with six kids and one on the way. That's not good. We shouldn't be worshiping the cult of burnout, basically. And smiling through it all. There has to be one day in the life of these seven children when she does not feel like fucking smiling. And, you know, if she can't do that without losing her brand and without letting people down, that's a problem. That's a big problem in how we have come to define motherhood. I will just quickly shout out, of course, Maintenance Phase did an excellent two-part episode on Rachel Hollis. So if you want way more Rachel Hollis analysis, Aubrey and Michael have you covered there. They talked a lot about the monogram thing. And apparently it's part of her pretending she's Southern, but she's actually from California. Speaking of pretenders, (laughs) do you want to go into Hilaria? Okay. She is another extremely thin woman. She's in a profile So you can really see the definition of her ab muscles, which I feel like is important to the story. She's wearing a black lacy bra and underwear. She is holding a cute little baby in a red onesie. They are near a bathtub, although they are both wearing clothes. Her hair is also in a nice half-up style, so I feel like this is not post-bath. She is sniffing her baby (laughs) in her underwear (laughs) is what this is a photo of. Oh, she does say post-bath in the caption, but... There's no way. So, again, a lot of the same patterns that we've seen in our other case studies. The, oh my goodness, you look absolutely incredible. After baby number two, my body decided to give into gravity. And then there's the and on the forehead emoji. The demonization of a body doing what a body just does. Give in to gravity. We're not in a war with gravity. The other comment you pulled, damn girl, I wish I'd looked like that. If I had, I too would have had more children, but I didn't, so I stopped at two. Uh, Yeah, that one really stuck out for me. We're in a place where we're considering how many children to have, how many human beings to add to our family based on how our body responds to pregnancy. I think she's articulating something really real. I think she's saying the silent part. The postpartum experience can be so brutal and put you through the ringer in so many ways. For me personally, it was more about like, I want my body back. I don't want my body to belong to this other creature anymore. I don't want to do that again. But I can understand what they're saying, even though it makes me also die inside. What I hate about that is the emphasis on the visuals of the body. I had a heinous time, especially postpartum with my first kid. It had nothing to do with 
how my body felt or looked, but it had everything to do with postpartum depression and the huge mental and emotional shifts that I went through. We're putting so much emphasis on the appearance of the body versus what the person in the body is experiencing. It's all about if this person had managed to look a certain way, even if two was the right number to stop that, or the postpartum experience was brutal due to mental health, it would be like, oh, I can have more because my body bounces back. This perceived notion of success runs rampant in all things motherhood. I successfully breastfed. I successfully potty trained. We're also seeing the policing again. Someone wrote, put some freaking clothes on. Yeah. So there's that sense of ownership over her body. A lot of weird comments about how she has no ass. Just the really intense microscopic look at her body. (laughs) And this one also gives way to a lot of Is she photoshopping this? Is this fake? Should we believe Mm -hmm. this? Wasn't there some controversy about her and surrogacy or secret surrogacy? Yeah, her next kid was born via surrogacy. There was some discourse about, oh, she just didn't want to be pregnant and put her body through that again. So Mm -hmm. she had someone else do it. The assumption that we all should be and can be judging mothers and their behaviors. We're assuming it's a choice. I mean... It may have been a choice for her. I have no idea. But obviously, using a surrogate is often not a choice. We're also then feeding into this hierarchy of the best mothers are the ones who can have them biologically and look like it never happened. Second to that would be, you. I apologize, I may be using the wrong terms, gestated them yourself. Even if you look like that happened, you can be a brave, thin mom who gestated your own children. Mm -hmm. Moving down the hierarchy is people who need IVF or need assistance or go the adoption route. We're playing into this weird hierarchy of who's the, quote, real or true mom. We're also belittling the experience that every mom has with your body. Only if you went through some hideous natural birth experience is your story worth telling. Is that a true motherhood war story? Other ways that motherhood intersects with our bodies isn't worth talking about, isn't worth holding space for that story. I know moms who adopted their kids whose bodies also changed dramatically. It's still a very physical experience of being a mom. That's such a good point. Also, if your body was your job in the way this woman's body is, maybe it is a reasonable business decision to say, I can't be pregnant because I have to maintain my body looking like this. I will shout out Bethany Garcia, who I mentioned earlier. She's on Instagram as The Garcia Diaries. And then Katie Crenshaw, who I quoted earlier. There's totally lots of burgeoning conversations having in the Monfluencer space about how we need to be focusing less, obviously, on mothers' bodies and more on the experience of motherhood, which is work Mm -hmm. and which is often rendered invisible. I'm so here for that shift in conversation. And I hope some of these influencers feel like they can participate. There's definitely some opportunity to change some narratives here. Yeah, and it's almost always met with overwhelming fan support. I think the next phase of this is like, we need to see non-thin moms able to do the same thing. And non-white moms and non-straight moms and non-cisgender moms. Right. We need to blow apart this definition of motherhood in so many ways. Right. And I am grateful you are doing it. Just cannot wait to read your book on all of this. It's going to be so, so awesome. Oh, yay. 
All right. So now it is time for better, which is where we give our recommendations. So Sarah, what do you have for us? Okay. So my favorite thing to do these days is to knit while listening to a podcast. It's so heavenly because you feel like you're doing something, not that you need to be productive at all times, but there's this virtuous sense of hearing and using my hands while also feeding my brain that just feels very good to me. It's just physically relaxing. I've been really into seasons of a podcast that will cover one whole story because mm-hmm. I like getting sucked in. So I just listened to Once Upon a Time at Bennington College, which is about, in the 80s, the writer Brett Easton Ellis, Donna Tartt, and another guy. I went to Bennington College. It was this confluence of these really influential writers in this one space and time. It inspired me to reread The Secret History, which was really fun. Ooh. Then, have you heard of The Plot Thickens? So that's a really good one. Each season covers one aspect of inside Hollywood movie making stuff. So there's a season about a fascinating, fascinating deep dive into Lucille Ball. Oh my gosh, that sounds really good. And what are you knitting while you're listening to all these things? So I have three kids and really only one of them will wear what I knit. Your influencer career is over already. You can't get your children into your hand nets. (laughs) So the knitting patterns I mostly use are like from basically a a knitting momfluencer, which is like so ridiculous. But she's, oh God, is she Danish? I don't know. She's like from one of those. She's certainly Scandinavian. She's just like classic white momfluencer. But her knitting patterns are beautiful. You know Cosmos, the flowers? Yes. Okay, so it's like a Cosmo pink funnel neck chunky sweater that I made for my daughter. Oh, it's I great. Want one. I used to be a pretty big knitter and I have not knit anything since my second pregnancy. My sister-in-law, shout out to Becca, is an amazing, amazing knitter. She's incredible. So I have the appreciation of knitting in my life because I get to see what she's working on. But this is making me want to get back into it again, especially in winter. It's such a good cozy time activity. Yeah. And it's an excuse to binge listen to podcasts, which is my favorite yes. thing. My recommendation is ignoring your children to read books that you want to read. Amazing. Um, this is something I have been a proponent of for a long time. A very important part of my platform is ignoring your children <laughs> in general, but um, specifically with reading, because unlike when you stare at your phone while you're with your kids and you have to feel guilty about it, which I do that as well, to be clear. Of course. But, you know, you have to feel guilty when you do it because that's like you're not present and da da da. Yeah. <laughs> when you're reading, you're modeling good behavior, you <laughs> know. So it's completely guilt free. Ignore your kids. <laughs> I like to do it pretty often, but especially on the weekends, if they're doing something on their own, I'll just like pick up my book and become invisible in plain sight and just read. I do recommend if you're starting out with it, start with some light fiction, something you can dip in and out of because you will get interrupted. I have a critical clarifying question about this. Do you employ earplugs? No, I don't use earplugs. I could. I actually think that sounds like a pro move (laughs) to level up the ignoring experience. Um, No, I stay within earshot. The way our house is set up, I can be like sitting on the couch in the living room and still pretty much see them because we have a very open concept house. I can like occasionally do a, oh, looks great about a drawing or yes, I would love a fake muffin (laughs) you're baking. (laughs) 
and then just turn a page and keep reading. (laughs) I really honed this during lockdown time when I was like, I will go insane if I have to play pizza oven again or whatever, exactly as you were saying. It's really boring. And sometimes it inspires like my older daughter, who is a real reader. She'll get her book and read. Nothing makes you feel like a more successful parent than co-reading with your child. Uh, Yeah. I mean, (laughs) hashtag mom goals. Now I'm setting an arbitrary high bar for you all, and I apologize. She also would love to be on her tablet the whole time. Of course. It's not the most intense escapist reading you'll ever do, but if you want a way to ignore your children, it is an excellent tool. And the thing I'm reading right now, which I'll admit is like so beautifully written, it's not ideal for this, but I am really enjoying The Matrix by Lauren Groff. If you're interested in 11th century nuns and who isn't, I can tell I'm already going to be mad when it's over. I'm actually going more slowly with it because I don't want this to end. And I want this to be a 500-page book, and it's not. That's like the highest praise. So, Sarah, tell listeners where they can follow your work. So, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at S. Louise Peterson. Louise is my middle name, and it's Peterson with an E. And then I have a website, which is sarah-peterson.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. This was such a great conversation. Oh, I loved it so much. Thanks, Virginia. Thank you so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. And consider a paid subscription to Burnt Toast. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space. And for the month of January, you can take 20% off your subscription by going to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com slash new year, no diet. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at, at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-sized clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.